meets the seventh church. And all these, all these churches were to receive this entire letter. This entire letter will be read to the church. But in Revelation 2 and 3, there are very specific messages to each of these churches. And I take these seven churches to be real churches that have unique dangers that the risen Christ is warning about. But these seven churches are representative of all churches throughout the history of the church. And so these are seven dangers that the church faces. And we're just looking at three of them. And this morning, uh, this morning we will look at Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, the message to the church in Philadelphia. And this is the danger of self-doubt. Revelation chapter 3, if you have that, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy and errant word? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Listen as I read. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you and we tremble at your word. We want to hear from you and not from man. But Father, we know that you show your strength and your wisdom through the weakness and foolishness of the very servants that you choose. And so, Father, we ask, would you use your, your, your weak, uh, devil uh, servant this morning? Father, would you uh, strengthen me from my debilities? Would you be with my mouth as you were with Moses' mouth? And would you speak clearly to your people and strengthen them? In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine that you're a brand new Christian. And you're a brand new Christian. You've just come to faith in Christ and you're very excited about your new faith. And you're meeting other Christians. But as you're meeting other Christians, these Christians come along and they seem to be more mature than you are. They seem to have more knowledge than you are. And then they seek to point you in a direction that may be a little surprising to you. And they say to you, wait a minute, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a genuine Christian because you haven't experienced the second blessing or 
the baptism of the Spirit. Or maybe they say, well, it's interesting that you say you're a Christian, but you, you can't be a true Christian. You can't be a true Christian because, because you eat pork. And so if you eat pork, then you must not be a real Christian. Or maybe they say, well, you think you're a Christian, but you, you can't be a real Christian because you don't speak in tongues. It's interesting, isn't it, how we can add to the gospel requirements that the gospel itself doesn't make of believers. Some Christians claim that you must do or believe any number of things in addition to the gospel in order to be a real Christian. So some might say to be a a real Christian, you must have a specific view of the age of the earth or you must have a specific view on spiritual gifts. Others might say that to be a real Christian, that you must hold to particular convictions about alcohol or tattoos or entertainment. In other words, there are those who believe that if you do certain things or don't do certain things, then you must not be a real Christian. When other people tell you to do something that is beyond what the gospel demands or actually to do less than what the gospel demands, what they're essentially doing is they're shutting the door to heaven. They're basically saying, look, you cannot be a Christian because you don't do these things or you don't believe these things. So I'm going to lock the door of heaven. You can't go to heaven. And that is essentially what we find in this message. In this message, the Jews were essentially locking the door of heaven to the Gentile believers in Philadelphia. They were saying to them, unless you do these things or believe these things, then you cannot be a real Christian. Now, can you imagine? Imagine a brand new Christian with so much excitement and so much joy. And all of a sudden you begin to deflate them because you're imposing demands on them that the gospel doesn't require. You can begin to confuse them. You can begin to discourage them. And if we listen to those who add or take away from the gospel what we must believe in order to be genuine Christians, we will likely face self-doubt and lack assurance. And this is what we see happening here in this message. How do we respond when we look around and it appears that everyone else is a better Christian than I am? How do we respond when we look as a church in other churches and we fall short of what other churches appear to be. Well, if you have asked those questions of yourself and if you wonder those same things, this message is for you. If you doubt your faith, if you lack assurance, if you feel like everyone else is a better Christian, Jesus wants you to hear this message this morning. You see, when you face self-doubt, I want to encourage you to remember that Jesus alone saves and we are secure in his salvation. What I want you to see is how Jesus encourages these brothers and sisters in Philadelphia. One of the unique things about this message, they're all structured uh, pretty much the same. But one of the unique things about this message is that it's missing something that is in the other messages. And that is a rebuke. This message lacks a rebuke. Jesus is speaking kindly and gently to a church that is in doubt 
of their standing before him because of what the Jews have been telling them about themselves. I want you to see here in verse 7 that Jesus begins by reminding us that we must remember when we're in self-doubt, we must remember that Jesus alone is able to save. Jesus alone is able to save. Look at verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Every letter, every message starts like this. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one opens. Every one of these messages begins with a glimpse of the risen Christ that was painted for us in Revelation chapter one. So Revelation begins with a vision of the risen Christ. And this vision of the risen Christ is carried through these messages to these churches. And Jesus applies one or more of these descriptions of himself to this church. So what we need, what we most need is to fix our eyes on the vision of the risen Christ. And Jesus is applying aspects of that vision specifically to these churches. And so it's curious how Jesus describes himself. He says he is the holy and true one. He is the one who has the key of David. The risen Christ is the one who is holy and true. This is, this is Old Testament language about Yahweh. This is Old Testament descriptions of the Lord. These are Old Testament descriptions of God himself. See, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. He is the I Am who was before Abraham. He is the only true God who is holy. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the same description, holy and true, is used of Jesus as his people await his judgment. Just as we sang, how long, O Lord, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the martyrs are saying, how long, O Lord, how long before you come and vindicate us? And this is the language that is used. Jesus is the holy and true God who judges. He is holy. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is the true God and he is the just judge. Our, one of the realities of Christians throughout history is that Christians have suffered persecution at the hands of different people, other religions, governments, so on and so forth. And that is one of the questions that we ask, how long, O Lord, before you vindicate us? And I know sometimes it appears his judgment is slow, just as in chapter 6, verse 10. But one of the things that we learn from Jesus himself is that he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. And when we entrust ourselves to the just judge, we can be patient in his judgment and in his vindication. Whatever suffering and injustice we face, we entrust ourselves to his justice. And when we entrust ourselves to his justice, listen, here's what happens. No matter what suffering we face and no matter what we go through, when we entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly, the holy and true judge, it frees us to forgive those who sin against us. It frees us to grant forgiveness to those who are persecuting us. It frees us from the root of bitterness. And it frees us from taking vengeance upon our own hands. So in the midst of persecution, Jesus tells them, 
I am the holy and true God who judges justly. We don't need to be afraid and we do not seek need to seek revenge. But notice Jesus is the holy and true God, but he's also the risen Christ who has the keys of David. Now, what does that mean? Is Jesse pointed out, there are many allusions or connections in Revelation to the Old Testament. Some say over 400. Some say there are actually no direct citations, but there are a lot of connections that are so clear we know where they come from. Well, the Jews were expecting a king from David's line to restore Israel and to restore the kingdom. This king would come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. By saying that he has the keys of David, Jesus is saying is that he is that promised king who would come to restore Israel. And he is that king that is expected who has the authority to let people into the kingdom. You see, the Jews were shutting the door to the Gentiles because they weren't Jews. They were expecting them to become Jews. But what Jesus says, he reminds them that he alone has that authority because he's the one that has the keys to the kingdom of David. He's the one that has the keys to the promised eternal kingdom that David's son would establish that would be an eternal kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And this is precisely what he says. He has the key of David who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one will open. While the Jews were persecuting the brothers and sisters in Philadelphia by apparently trying to make them to become Jews before they could become Christians. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. They were shutting the kingdom to the Gentiles. And Jesus says, now, wait a minute. Only I can do that. Only I have the authority to unlock the key to the kingdom of David. And if I unlock that door, no one else can close it. If I lock that door, no one else can open it. Jesus is the risen Christ and the risen King who alone has the authority to open and shut the gates of heaven of his eternal kingdom. Brothers and sisters, do you know what this means? If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Christ right now, no one can tell you, oh, oh, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you don't do what I do. And you're not a Christian because you don't believe what I believe. You, you see, that door has been opened to all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in the risen Christ, the holy and true God, is the one who's had heaven open to them. And Jesus receives everyone who believes. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This means that our salvation is secure. So when you doubt your salvation, you need to remember who Jesus is. He is the true and holy one who alone is able to save. So remember, Jesus alone is able to save. But secondly, I want you to see here in verse 8. Remember what pleases Jesus is not outward appearances, but faithfulness. Let me see that again. What pleases Jesus is not outward appearance, but faithfulness. Again, look at verse 8. He says, I know your works. Jesus knows us. He knows his church. He knows his people. And he says, I know your works. Look, 
I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. Jesus is saying, I have opened the gates of heaven to you, the gates of the eternal kingdom to you, and no one can close them on you. No one can tell you that you're not welcome. And notice he says he does this because you have little power. This is a church that appears to be insignificant. They have little power. They have little influence. Jesus says, I know your works, that you have but little power. And Jesus says, open the door to the city of God's kingdom, the new Jerusalem, to these brothers and sisters. This is salvation. As Jesse read from, uh, alluded to Acts 14, 27, in Antioch, when they reported back to the church, it said, God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So all who have faith in Jesus have an open door to the eternal kingdom. If you're here this morning and maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, I want to appeal to you. This door is open to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who believe in Jesus are welcome into the eternal kingdom. But all who reject the Son, that door will be locked. All who reject the Son on that final day, you can knock all you want But that door will be locked once Jesus returns. So until Jesus returns, and so long as you have breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to turn away from your sins and to trust in Christ. I'm sure there are plenty of brothers and sisters here who are around you, maybe the person that you came with, that would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Jesus. I'll be here after the service. More, be more than happy to talk to you about, about what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that door has been opened to you and no one can shut it. But if you do not trust in Jesus, that door is locked to you. And no one can open it. And so, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Philadelphia had little power. That means it had little influence. They, they weren't a mega church. They didn't have a well-known pastor. But I want you to notice, even though they lacked size and power and influence, I want you to know what they had. You have but little power yet. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. This little church with little power and little influence was faithful. Jesus doesn't look at the outward appearances. Jesus is not impressed by the size of our church. He's not impressed by the budget of our church. He's not impressed by the name of the pastor of our church. Jesus is not pleased with what the world is pleased. Jesus is pleased by faithfulness. Now, listen, it doesn't mean that a large church with a well-known pastor is necessarily unfaithful. The very first church we see in Acts chapter 2 was a megachurch. 3,000 people in one day. And Peter was pretty famous. But the point is, sometimes we put our stock in those things. Sometimes we put our hope in a specific pastor because of his name or because of the books that he's written. Or we put our stock in a specific church because of the programs they have and because of the size that they are. Or we put our trust in a specific church 
because of the name that they have in a community. Listen, Jesus is not impressed by those things. And he says to the church in Philadelphia, you have a little power, but you have been faithful. You have kept my word, the gospel word, and you have not denied my name. And that's what pleases Jesus. Brothers and sisters, these words should be an encouragement to you. Emmanuel Church in Fujira, on your 10th anniversary, these words should be an encouragement to you. Raise your hand if you were here 10 years ago when the church started. Okay, I see two hands, three hands. Okay, how, how many people were here when the church started? This many people? I doubt it. I remember when I came, Steve was sharing with me what a hard work this was. What a hard work it was to to be a faithful church in Fujira. But guess what? Look around you. This is the Lord's faithfulness. And so these words should be an encouragement to you. I would imagine, this is just my speculation, but I would imagine that people throughout the United Arab Emirates look at, wow, that church in Abu Dhabi, or wow, that church in Dubai. And you might think to yourself, well, we're just a little church in Fujira. Guess what? The Lord is not impressed by size. He's impressed by faithfulness. So beloved, take these words as an encouragement. The Lord Jesus knows your works. He knows you personally. And He loves you. And He gave His Son for you. So keep His word and don't deny His name. And just live the Christian life, which is simply the thousand steps of faithfulness day in and day out. That is the Christian life. These are glorious words for all of us. You may not be the largest church even in town. You may not be the most influential or powerful church in town. Your financial situation may limit your ministry. But Jesus is not impressed by those things. And Jesus doesn't need those things to work. When you doubt yourself, remember, Jesus isn't pleased merely with outward success. He is pleased by faithfulness. So keep his word. Don't deny his name. Don't worry about what you don't have. Remember what you have and hold fast to that. And then thirdly, here in verses 9 through 11. I want to encourage you to remain faithful by clinging to the promises of Christ. Remain faithful by clinging to the promises of the risen Christ. There are a number of promises here that I see in verse 9. First of all, Jesus promises your vindication. We, we sang, how long, O Lord? We feel that. How long, O Lord, before you vindicate us? Well, listen, cling to the promise. You will be vindicated. The risen Christ promises our vindication. Verse 9, he says, note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. These are Jews, ethnic Jews, but they're not believing Jews. They have rejected their own Messiah. And Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan because they're doing the work of Satan. They're the accusers of the brethren and they're liars like their father, the devil, 
is a liar and the father of lies. And so they're the synagogue of Satan. They're somehow accusing the Gentile believers. And I would suspect, just like the rest of the New Testament, they are claiming that these Christians are not the people of God. They're shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven to these Gentiles because they think they're the people of God and Jesus corrects them. Those are not my people. They're a synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews and are not. The true and faithful children of Abraham are all who believe in the seed of Abraham, namely Jesus. And then he says this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. This is an allusion to Isaiah 60 verse 14, which Jesus turns on its head. Isaiah 60, 14 says, The sons of your oppressors will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. The Jews would have claimed this promise for themselves. They would have claimed the promise that they will be vindicated and God will make their enemies bow down before them. Jesus turns this on its head and he says, I will make these from the synagogue of Satan bow down before you. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. They will know that I have loved you. So salvation is not based on genealogy. It's not based on lineage. It's not based on flesh and blood. It's not based on ethnicity. Children, listen, you're not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You're not a Christian just because your dad is a pastor or a deacon. You're not a Christian just because your grandparents were Christians. Only those who repent of their sins and trust in the holy, true God, the God-man Jesus Christ, are the true and faithful people of God. Jesus promised to vindicate the believers in Philadelphia as the true people of God, the ones whom he loves. The holy and true God of Israel rejects the unbelieving Jews as his people, and he loves the Christians in Philadelphia as his people because only those who receive God's Messiah are the true people of God. There's no need to be discouraged, beloved. Sometimes when you compare yourself to others and you compare your faith to others, you can doubt your own salvation. We have five daughters, and I remember when our third daughter, who had professed faith in Christ, was struggling with that faith. And she came to us, and she was, I think, 15 years old, maybe 16, and she said, Mom and Dad, I don't think I'm a Christian. And so we sat with her and we asked her lots of questions. And, and as we were working with her through those doubts, what we began to discover is that her older sister, our second daughter, she's a very different person. Our second daughter is expressive. And when we sit in worship, you know, she's expressive and, and she wears her emotions on her sleeves and, and she loves the Lord. We'll just all her whole heart outwardly. And our third daughter is a very private person. 
And she expresses love in strong ways, but in very private ways. And she's a very different kind of person. And the, and the realization that we came to is that she said, when I look at hope and I see her faith, my faith doesn't look like that. And if that's what faith looks like, then I must not be a Christian. Friends, do not compare your faith to someone else. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you placing your hope in Christ? Our salvation is from the Lord and he draws us to himself. And if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you are his child. It doesn't matter what your faith looks outwardly. It doesn't matter if you sing very meekly with your hands held together or if you sing very loudly with your hands lifted up. Jesus is not impressed with outward appearances. He looks on the heart. And so be careful not to compare your faith to other believers. Sometimes we're discouraged because other people make us feel bad, as I mentioned at the very beginning. They tell us that we can't be true Christians unless we believe like they do and act like they do. And then sometimes in the midst of suffering, Times can be very confusing. And in the midst of suffering, we might be tempted to doubt God's love for us. Or we might be tempted to doubt God's sovereignty over all things. Or we might be tempted to doubt God's wisdom. And beloved, what we need to do is we need to remember who this Jesus is. And remember that he is taking everything, including the bad and the suffering, as well as the good and the joyful, to conform us to the image of his son. And so we must continue to trust and walk by faith in him and not the sight of our circumstances. Jesus loves you. He has saved you. He has given us the keys of the kingdom. And we now as a church have the authority to recognize credible professions of faith and encourage one another in that faith and affirm one another's faith. Jesus promises our vindication, but also Jesus promises our protection. Look at verse 10. Jesus promises our protection. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. The Philadelphian believers would be kept from the hour of testing. What is that hour of testing? I want you to notice the play on the words kept and keep here. Because they kept the word of Jesus. Jesus would keep them from the hour of testing. This hour that is coming upon those who dwell on the earth. This language of those who dwell on the earth represents the unrepentant wicked. They worship the beast and receive his mark in Revelation 11.10. In Revelation 13, 8 and 14. In Revelation 17, 2 and 8. These are those who worship the beast. In other words, unbelieving people. It is these who will receive the hour of testing and the final judgment. And so I take this hour of testing to refer to the final judgment. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he promises to keep the Philadelphian Christians from final judgment. He will protect them 
at the final judgment. He will keep them from that hour because they kept his word and they were faithful. I take this to be a universal promise to all believers. After all, Jesus says in verse 13, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. But how does Jesus keep all believers from that hour? Well, the question we have to ask is, what does the Bible tell us? Are we promised in Scripture that God's people will be protected from all suffering, from trials and from tribulations? No. If anything, the opposite is true, isn't it? John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And then consider John 17.15, Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17.15, this is the only other place in the New Testament where keep and out of or from are found together. Here, Jesus doesn't pray for his disciples to be taken out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We see then that this is not a promise to take believers out of this world. It is a promise to be protected from the devil while on the earth. Likewise, the message of Revelation does not point to a removal of Christians from this world at the hour of testing. It points to protection in the midst of suffering at the final judgment. Ultimately, we are protected from the final judgment because of the salvation that Jesus has given us. All who are in Christ Jesus are free from condemnation. God's wrath will not fall on us because it has fallen on Jesus. In fact, we will not be judged. Instead, we will be with Christ and we will judge the world. So Jesus promises our protection. But notice in verse 12, Jesus also promises eternal security. These are all bound together. Jesus promises our eternal security. In verse 12, I'm skipping over verse 11 and I'll come right back to it. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. Philadelphia in the history of the city of Philadelphia, there were times when earthquakes would come and the people would have to evacuate. And these earthquakes came with some frequency. Pillars are to support structures, temples. And in earthquakes, they crumbled. But in the eternal heavens, we will be as secure as a pillar in the temple of God. And we will never have to evacuate it for any reason whatsoever. Here we see this kind of security, this, this kind of hope that we have, where Jesus is using the history of Philadelphia and the frequent earthquakes that they would have when the people would have to evacuate the city. And Jesus is saying to the Christians in Philadelphia that he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of God where there's tremendous stability and they will never have to evacuate that place ever again. Jesus is saying that because we are his people, we will dwell in his place and never leave. This is eternal security. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
But we're not going to live there like just tenants renting space. Look at the next promise in verse 12. Jesus promises intimate fellowship with God. Intimate fellowship with God. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. What does it mean that Jesus will write the name of his God on them? What, was, what does a name do? A name identifies who you belong to. My name is Juan Sanchez. But I can't use that name when I travel because Juan Sanchez is on the no-fly list as a terrorist. So I have to use my full birth name, which is Juan Ramon Sanchez de Jesus. De Jesus connects me to my mother, that's her maiden name. Sanchez connects me to to my father, that is his name. And so in my culture, we put both the name of the father and the mother so that we can identify where people come from. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. But that's my full name. It tells me who I belong to. We did the same thing with our children. My children have my name and they have Janine's name, my wife's name. Now that actually happened by accident, but we named our first daughter Alexandra, middle name Del, and last name Sanchez. Del is my wife's maiden name. And when Hope Amanda was born, Her name was Hope Amanda Sanchez, but my daughter called her Hope Amanda Del Sanchez because that's what she thought her name is. That must be her name. And so we legally changed her name to Hope Amanda Del Sanchez. And now all our children have the Del Sanchez name because it identifies both the mother and the father. You see, name tells you who you belong to. And Jesus says, I'm going to put the name of my God on you. Because you belong to my God. You are his and he is yours. This is a picture of intimacy and knowledge and fellowship and family. It will be known that we belong to God, that he is our father and that we are his children. But that's not the only name Jesus writes on us. He will write the name of the new Jerusalem on us. So not only do we belong to God, we belong to the new Jerusalem. Now, I understand that football, when I say football, everywhere else but the United States, you think of soccer. And whenever I travel in Latin America, one of the most fascinating things is every town has their own soccer team. And so people wear the jerseys of their soccer team, of their town, or of their state, or of their nation. In Cuba, they do that with baseball. And every town has a baseball team. And so every town is proud of their baseball team and they wear their town name on their jersey. Guess what? Guess what our team name is? New Jerusalem. That's the name that Jesus will write on us. That's our team. That's who we belong to. That's our home. But finally, Jesus says, I will write my name on you. When I was 17 years old, I enlisted in the Navy because... My parents couldn't afford college. And um, I got on a plane in Orlando, Florida. I got off the plane in San Diego, California. And uh, immediately as soon as I got off the plane, people began yelling at me for no reason whatsoever. 
We got on this very gray bus, went to the Naval Training Center in San Diego, and people kept yelling at us. And we went to this place where they gave us all these clothes that looked like prison clothes, and we began stenciling our name on every single piece of garment. Every garment, Sanchez, 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 until you just got tired of it. Just to prove, this is my clothes. These uniforms belong to me. When Jesus comes again, he's going to stencil his new name on us. We belong to Jesus and we will dwell in his presence forever and ever and ever in intimate fellowship. Notice these promises. These promises are meant to give us hope and encouragement. And the way that we remain in Christ is by believing these promises. When we believe these promises, we can endure until the end. Now let's look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming soon. So hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. This is the crown of life, the crown that represents eternal life, the crown that represents that we have crossed the finish line. We have finished the race. We have become victors with our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have won the crown that is eternal life. Now, it doesn't mean that you can lose it. It doesn't mean that anyone can steal it. But the point is that Jesus is encouraging us to endure so that we don't disqualify ourselves in the race, but that we endure. How? By holding on to what we have. Jesus reminds us he is coming soon. And this is our hope. This is how Revelation ends. Come, Lord Jesus. Believing Jesus promises hoping for what we will receive, we can endure now holding fast to what we already have. What do we have? We have Jesus. What do we have? We have the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. What do we have? We have a spirit. He's given us a spirit, hasn't he? What do we have? We have each other. He's given us his church. What do we have? We have his word. Beloved, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We have everything that we need to endure. You think you're poor, but you are rich. You think you need something else, but you don't. You might think you're small, but you're not. You might think that you don't have much power, but you do. Jesus is coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Are you holding fast to Jesus? Are you not denying his name? Pray and seek opportunities to share the name of Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to make you courageous that you don't deny his name. Take advantage of every opportunity that the Lord gives you to speak of Jesus. Are you holding fast to his gospel word? How is your personal time of communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? We get to know him and are intimate with him by his word. He has given us his word. How is your corporate time with God's people sitting under the ministry of the word? How are you helping others to grow and keep this gospel word? How are you ensuring this gospel word is kept here at Emmanuel Church in Fujira? How are you holding fast as a church to the gospel word? 
Pastors, protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach all of God's word. Feed God's sheep with God's word. Church, protect the gospel. Pray for your pastors. Pray for their faithfulness. That they would hold fast so that they would help you hold fast. There is no need to be discouraged by your size, the lack of power influence, or even your finances. Jesus is not pleased with merely outward expressions or successes. He is pleased by our faithfulness. And all who endure faithfully will receive the crown of life. The crown that is life. Listen to this final exhortation in verse 13. Let anyone who has ears to listen, to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You and I need to hear this message because we're so easily discouraged. We are so easily discouraged. Maybe you look at other Christians and wish you could be like them. Maybe you wish you could have a testimony like their testimony. Maybe you wish you could have more influence, more fruit, more opportunities. Maybe you wish your church were larger, had a bigger budget. Beloved, be encouraged. Be encouraged by looking at the risen Christ. He is our holy and true God who alone gives salvation. And because he has saved us, he will vindicate us. Because he has saved us, he will protect us. And because he has saved us, he will bring us once and for all into the presence of God for intimate fellowship. And this salvation that we have is eternally secure because Jesus has secured it for us by his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Praise be to the holy and true God who has the key of David. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ. Father, for those in this room this morning who lack assurance or are easily discouraged, Holy Spirit, would you take these words from the message of Jesus and apply it to their hearts? Would you lift up their heads? Would you allow them to see the risen Christ, the holy and true God who has the key of David? And would you remind them of your love for them? Would you give them the grace and strength to taste and see that you are good to experience the love of Christ for them. And Father, would you protect Emmanuel Church in Fujiro? And would you allow them to continue to grow in steadfast faithfulness until you return, Jesus? We know that you're coming soon and we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until then, continue to have your hand upon Emmanuel Church in Fujiro. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.